Thanks for joining us on Stand Strong in the Word podcast with author, speaker, and worldview expert, Jason Jimenez. Stand Strong in the Word podcast is devoted to walking listeners through the Bible in a fresh and powerful way. We pray your spirit is nourished as you gain new perspectives and a renewed appreciation for God's Word. Now, here's Jason Jimenez. What's up, my friends? Jason Jimenez here. So glad to be with you here on Stand Strong in the Word podcast. Today is podcast 111, and today we're going to be talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and and get this, as I'm recording this right now in studio, this coming Sunday is actually Easter. So, you know, we've been studying the life and teaching of Jesus Christ in chronological order for well over three years. They've been following along since day one, since the first episode. And it so happens as I'm getting into Sunday, the resurrection, it's this week. So that is really, really cool. Now, before we dive in and look at the resurrection, I just want you guys to know that every year when You talk about Palm Sunday and then the final week or the final days leading up to the death, the crucifixion of Jesus. What I always do in my personal devotion life, and I encourage you to do the same. We have all the information, again, with the the audio, with the podcast. Just go back and look up Saturday of Passion Week. You can look at Friday of Passion Week all the way to Palm Sunday. And when it comes to that final week leading to Easter, when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, every day leading up to the resurrection, I'm studying those days, those final days, those final teachings, those final events of what Jesus went through. And it's such a, just a a sweet time because when Easter comes, I'm looking back and seeing the richness because almost a third of Jesus's teaching comes that we have recorded in the gospels comes from that final week. So I encourage you to take advantage of that. Go to standstrongministries.org, click on podcasts, and my notes are there. Use them. If you have a small group at church, you want to start one, you want to do it with your spouse, your family, your kids, I encourage you to take advantage of that because it's such a great, great study. All right, so now we are entering the resurrection of Jesus. So this is Easter Sunday, and the first event that we see is the women arrive at the empty tomb. Now, this is recorded In the Synoptic Gospels, we'll start with Matthew chapter 28, verse 1. It says, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, now Mark 16, verse 2 says, Very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, or as Mark 16, the previous verse, verse 1 says, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome, they bought spices. And then Luke chapter 24, verse 1 says, They went to see the tomb. And then back to Mark 16, And the second part of verse one says, so that they might go and anoint Jesus. So here we have the synoptic gospels indicate that the resurrection of Jesus happened early on Sunday morning. Now, this phrase where they went to see the tomb before, remember the start of the Sabbath, the women from Bethany were told had witnessed where Jesus was buried. So they knew where they were going to go first thing in the morning on Sunday, according to Matthew 27, verse 61, Mark 15, verse 47, and Luke 23, verse 55. Now notice though, when you look at Matthew's account in chapter 28, verses two through four, we're told here that a great earthquake had occurred. And it says here in verse two, and behold, or there occurred or happened, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning in his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Okay, so this earthquake occurs before the women arrive to the tomb. 
Now, remember, if you go back when Jesus dies, the first earthquake occurred in Matthew 27, verse 54. And notice what happens with these guards that are there. They fall like dead men. So they faint literally out of fear. And then when we jump to Mark 16, 3 through 5, this is now when the women arrive at the tomb of Jesus. Notice it says, And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. So the women literally were hoping that at least 20 men would be there or show up somehow and assist them in rolling back the stone out of the carved grove so that they can finish embalming Jesus for proper burial. And not only that, but remember, the women didn't fully understand because a lot of debate and discussion was going on about how to preserve where Joseph of Arimathea had buried Jesus with Nicodemus's assistance. And so Pontius Pilate, members sent other guards and put a Caesar seal there, we're told in Matthew 27, 62 through 66. So this really shows that the women, again, they, even though they were able to identify because they were there to witness where Jesus's dead body went, they didn't, they didn't know fully to the extent of what was, what was taking place since then with the guards and with the seal. So they didn't know how they were really going to get to Jesus's body. But if you think about it, how many times when something happens in your life, something big, and you rush to just go there and you just say, we'll just figure out, we'll figure it out when we get there. We're told here in verse five that as they entered the tomb, now this is important to note that they were going into the outer chamber because uh, in those sepulchral areas, they were separated by a doorway that was leading into the burial chamber. Now Luke 24, three and four says, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. They saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Literally, they were greatly astounded and they grew pale. So in one sense, because of the appearance of these angels, the Roman guards fall faint because of fear. And now in this case with the women, they grew pale. They're so starstruck, if you will. Now, if you notice, Luke mentions that there were two angels and Matthew Mark only focused on the one angel that spoke to the women. He's referenced here as a young man. This is important because angels were often mistaken for humans. If you go back to Daniel chapter 10, verse 5. And, and, but, but the thing that we're told about the description of both of these angels is that they appeared in heavenly light. So it's very clear that they're messengers sent from God. Now, another thing I want to mention before we move ahead, because a lot of times skeptics will use this to show, aha, see, uh, it says one angel and then the other gospel here in Luke mentions there were two. But as guys are always pointed out, he says when there's usually two, there's always one in the crowd. And that's not a contradiction. They just so happened just to focus on one, and maybe it was just because one spoke when the other didn't. Now, in Mark 16, verse 6, it says, And they said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, or Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He was risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, Matthew 28, 5 through 6. Now, Luke 24, 5 through 7 says, and as they, the women, were frightened, alarmed, greatly surprised, and bowed their faces to the ground, that literally means they were blotting out the bright light. So here they're pale, they're greatly astounded, they're alarmed, and they're having to bow because the light was so brilliant. Remember, it's early in the morning, so it's kind of dusk. They're in a tomb-like setting, so it's pretty dark in there, and they're exposed. And the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? 
He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered, meaning betrayed into the hands of sinful men and crucified, and on the third day rise? So remember, on multiple occasions, Jesus predicted his death. You go back to Luke 9, 22, Luke 18, 31 through 34, Luke 23, 49. Jesus repeatedly talked about this. And the angels are here reminding the women of that fact. Now, this is interesting because this, this declarative statement in Luke's, Luke's gospel, Luke 24, 5 through 7, points out three key things. Number one, they're telling the women, remember, Jesus came and he fulfilled prophecy. Number two, Jesus is in fact risen. And number three, if that's the case, then Jesus atoned for the sins of the world. Now, Mark 16, verse 7 says, but go tell his disciples and, notice it says, and Peter, that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So the women, remember, they're not credible eyewitnesses in the court of law. And yet the writers of the gospels record that it was women who reported the tomb was empty to who? The men, to the actual disciples who lived among him full time for almost three plus years so I believe this reinforces the credibility of the resurrection account because it doesn't, remember Peter's telling Mark these accounts and they're telling him and he's recording it in the early 50s and then Matthew then comes out with his and then Luke does a, a very detailed account when you see that in Luke chapter one, verses one through four and then the part two of the early church in, in the book of Acts that they're they're basing a lot of the credibility here uh, in reinforcing this truth of what had occurred because of what Mark has placed here. And it was the women who are the ones that announced that the tomb was empty. And they were told in Mark 16, verse 8, and they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid in Mark 28, 7 through 8. Now, this may seem to contradict the other sources. However, in the Greek, it simply implies they didn't share this news with anyone whom they feared outside the disciples. Again, I make mention of that because a lot of skeptics use that to try to show that there's contradiction here. When in fact, when you just look at the language in the original language, that is what it was implying again is they didn't share it with anyone outside of the disciples. They're told by the angels to go tell the disciples and Peter, Mark 16, verse 7. And that's precisely what they're about to do. Now we turn to Luke 24, 8 through 9. It says, and they remembered. So now as they're going to the disciples, they remembered, meaning they were mindful of Jesus's words. And returning from the tomb, they told all of these things to the 11 and to all the rest. So the women at this point, probably six of them, told the 11 disciples and the other followers of Christ who also were from Galilee. Now, obviously, remember, Judas Iscariot had already committed suicide at this point, so he was not a part of this. Now, Luke 24, 10 through 11 says, Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna, her husband, who was Herod's steward, and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them, who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them as an idle tale. In Greek, it literally means as they were being told this, the disciples were looking at the women as, and, and saying, this is pure nonsense. And they did not believe them. Now, remember, many of these women, they were followers of Jesus from Galilee as well, from, from the very beginning, just like these men in Luke 8, 2 through 3, Mark 15, verse 40. 
But yet the men didn't believe them. You think, well, why wouldn't they believe them when Jesus had told these things and they saw the miracles and these women are credible, you know, to the men that is. Well, you remember in an ancient Mediterranean world, women were not seen as credible eyewitnesses. They were not used in a court of law. That's why they didn't believe. But then notice at first it was pure nonsense to them. But then we're told in John's gospel in chapter 20, verses 3 through 10, Peter and John, they go and they visit the tomb. So we're told here that, that Peter went with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb, but both of them were running together. But the other disciple, that is John, I love how he put that in there, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. So it's funny that John wants to point out in the process that he was leaner and faster uh, than the older and heavier Peter. A little bit of a competition here. Who loves Jesus more? Who does Jesus perhaps love more? Remember, they argued about who the greatest is and who's going to sit on the right and who's going to sit on the left. And and we know that Peter was kind of the ringleader throughout this. And he was a very uh, robust and strong man. But John has to say, well, yeah, he's stronger and heavier and bigger, uh, but I'm leaner and faster. And then it says in verse five, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in, Luke 24, verse 12. So the empty tomb stunned John so much as he goes into remember, that inter part, the, the entryway that is, but he doesn't go further inside the tomb. Now, Zondervan Illustrated Bible Backgrounds Commentary, he puts it like this, the stooping suggests a tomb with a low entrance leading to a lower pit. The lighting or the positioning of Jesus's body, example on the shelves on either side, would explain why the head veil was not visible before entering. Now in verse six, it says, then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb and he saw in Greek, this word that Peter, when it says that Peter saw is a long, intense staring. So as John doesn't go further in and he's perplexed, Simon goes all the way in, which again, explains a lot of the characteristics of Peter. John's a little bit more reserved, a little bit more passive. Peter's in your face. He goes straight in and he's just dazed and confused and just staring at this empty area where Jesus's body should be because it says that the linen cloths were lying there. And then verse seven, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus's head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. So John's description of Peter entering the tomb is very bold. And it speaks again, as I mentioned, not only to his personality, but both, but it's interesting how they both take it in. But more importantly, though, the, the, the surrounding, the setting, the descriptiveness that we see here in John's gospel about Jesus's clothes that, that remember Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus used to embalm him, the, the folded up here, it shows that the scene didn't look like a grave robbery. In all indications, what they were trying to take in was, it doesn't make sense. Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, these men know how to embalm a body. Everything that we're looking at does not seem like a grave robbery, which was very common back then. Now, the other thing that's important to note is when you go back to the resurrection of Lazarus in John eleven forty four, and Jesus here, remember Lazarus was raised back to life in a mortal body. Is kind of a foreshadowing, okay, of what you and I will have one day. But here, Jesus was raised to an immortal, that is a spirit-dominated body. So try to take that in if you're John and Peter. And then we're told in verse 
8, then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and he believed. The idea here is that he believed in the good news. Something amazing was happening. But then John, he purports here later on in verse 9, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So they were not able to, at that point in time, they're so perplexed and astonished. Remember, they're trying to take in what the, what the women had said. It's early Sunday morning. They've been celebrating. They've just uh, been mourning and suffering over the loss of their Messiah, their master. And then verse 10 says, then the disciples went back to their homes. So although John didn't fully understand, though, here, the prophecies, nor Peter concerning, again, Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection, notice they were inclined, however, particularly John in this case, as he, he, he puts it in here in his account, he was inclined to believe that Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead, but they couldn't fully make sense of what Scripture had to say about this. For example, if you go back to Psalm 16, verse 10, where it says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol and let your Holy One see corruption. Or going to Isaiah 53, 10 through 12, or Hosea chapter 6, verse 2. So they were not inclined to, to go there, per se, at this point in time. That wouldn't happen until later. But this belief here, though, that John tells us in verse 8 of John 20 shows us that he's believing in this good news that something amazing has happened here. Now, the expository's Bible commentary of the New Testament says this, quote, The teaching of Scripture, however, was not yet clear to the disciples, and they required fuller explanation by Jesus. To what Scripture does this passage refer? There is a parallel in John 2, verse 21, which asserts that the disciples understood Jesus' statement about raising the temple of his body in connection with Scripture. The Gospel of John contains no specific text that might be interpreted as a prediction of the resurrection. Perhaps Psalm 16, verse 10, quoted by Peter in Acts 2, 24 through 31, is a scripture being suggested. For these two key disciples, the realization of the temple of the resurrection began with material evidence, the significance of which dawned on them slowly. Their eagerness to visit the tomb showed their concern for Jesus. Had they dismissed him from their consciousness after his death, they would not have exerted themselves by running to Joseph's garden early in the morning. Their understanding, however, was slow in spite of Jesus' repeated predictions of his passion and resurrection, end quote. Now we turn to Jesus appearing to Mary in John 20, 11 through 19. It says here, but Mary stood weeping. So, now you think, okay, where are we at here? I believe that Mary uh, returns and she's standing there weeping and she's grieving loudly, we're told in Greek, outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. So Mary, here she is, she's back at the tomb alone and she's trying to make sense of what happened to Jesus. Again, we don't know if this was a few hours since the women returned to tell the disciples and John and Peter get there, and then they leave to go back home, we're told, and then Mary arrives again within an hour or two. We don't know, but I believe this is occurring after John and Peter leave the tomb. And you're thinking, why does she return? Because this was unbearable for her. They're trying to make sense of what has happened, and they're not really getting a whole lot of direction from the disciples. And they were told in verse 12, and she, that is Mary, she sees uh, two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, 
They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. So John's report of the two angels being present, again, is, is to point to a resurrection. Grave robbers, again, did not steal the body. This was a divine act of God. And once again, these uh, angels appear again, two of them, I believe the same angels, to Mary. Then verse 14 says, Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Now, there are several things I think might explain why Mary didn't recognize that it was Jesus. And I get this question a lot from people. So here are three key things. One, uh, I don't believe that obviously clearly that we're seeing here that she wasn't expecting to see Jesus's resurrected body alive, boom, right then and there. Because we just read, she was didn't know where his body was being laid. What, maybe Joseph of Arimathea did something at the last minute or Nicodemus, they don't know. Two, she was extremely emotional and saddened. I mean, you know, when you're just bawling your eyes out, you know, not only you're not thinking clearly, but you can't even, you know, physically see, you know, uh, normally. And three, uh, I believe that Jesus' resurrected body in his glorified state might might have looked different to her. Um, and, and, but what's important is that there were several episodes throughout up to this point where Jesus was not recognizable. In Matthew 28, 17, Luke 24, 16, 37, John 21, 4. So it wasn't like Mary was stupid because sometimes, again, reading, uh, you know, commentaries, especially from skeptic people, um, they're saying, see, you know, th- this doesn't make any sense. You know, you're, you know, Mary says he rose from the dead, but she couldn't even recognize him because it wasn't Jesus. And they try to make excuses that way. But again, you have to understand the context of Scripture and other times where Jesus was not recognizable. There was a difference. He was in a spirit-dominated body now, post-resurrection, still the same person, but something you have to get used to. Sometimes when you don't recognize somebody because they get a haircut or they get a tan or they lost weight, same person, just a little different. Now, verse 15 says, so Jesus says to, to Mary, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking, supposing him to be the gardener? She said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Roboni, which means teacher, master. This is a beautiful, by the way, a beautiful picture of Jesus as the good shepherd because he calls her by name. Remember John 10, 3, that I call my sheep by name. And the sheep know my voice, John 10, 4. Now, you might be wondering, why does she refer to him as Rabboni? Now, remember, Mary being from Galilee, Aramaic was her native language. So she was speaking in Aramaic that way to refer to him as her master and teacher instead of just saying rabbi. Now, verse 17 says, Jesus said to her, do not cling. That means do not seize, do not retain me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your father to my God and your God. Now, this is important to note because here Jesus now gives her a command. He tells Mary that he will still be around before ascending to heaven, but she is not to worry. It's not like she'll never see him again, but he says here that I am ascending, meaning he's offering a new relationship after the resurrection that's forthcoming before his ascension. And so they will now be enjoying a richer experience of her Roboni, her master, her teacher. Now, another thing that's amazing to point out here, when we, when we talked earlier that the women were the first eyewitnesses to the empty tomb and the disciples didn't really believe, and then Peter and John run over there. Now, Mary's the first one that sees the resurrected Christ. 
And Mary, a woman, is the first to be given a special word, a special privilege to take this wonderful message when Jesus says that I'm going to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God, to to go to the disciples and say, not only have I seen the resurrected Christ, but he is going to be ascending back to heaven, and we have this access now to our Heavenly Father. Everything that the prophets have been telling us beforehand has now been fulfilled in the Messiah and the resurrected Savior. So verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples saying, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. Now, when you look at early manuscripts of Mark 16, 9 through 11, of course, Mark 16, 9 through 20 is not included in the early manuscripts. Those are not included until later after, in some cases, the 4th or 6th century. But in verses 9 through 11 in Mark 16, it says, Now when he rose, that is Jesus, early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and they wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. So again, Uh, Mary Magdalene goes back, and I believe at this point, the disciples, one, again, not credible. Think about her past still. So this is still a struggle. These disciples are human. They don't fully get everything, and they're probably jealous or upset thinking, look, if Jesus, who was our master, who we follow, and we're men, we're credible eyewitnesses, he would appear to us first. I think there's some tension there, and there's clearly, as we're told here, there's disbelief. But then notice Jesus appears to the women. This, I believe, is very insightful because it shows that women tend to embrace on an intimate level. They get it sometimes uh, more clearly than men. Men tend to be a little bit more uh, objective or skeptical about things and says, until I see. We're going to see that in a minute with Thomas. That's not saying it's a bad thing. I'm an evidentialist. I need to see the proof. I need to see it firsthand. I don't just take people at face value. But it's interesting that Jesus continues to appear to the women before he even appears to the disciples. We're told in Matthew 28, 9 through 10, and behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And the women came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers, meaning the disciples, to go to Galilee and there they will see me. So things are progressing here because remember before this, you know, Jesus was telling Mary Magdalene not to cling to me because she had to go and report these things to the disciples. But now Jesus allows the women to embrace his resurrected body and there they worship him. Now, of course, Jesus being a Galilean, uh, you know, it's a no brainer that he's telling them to go back from their area. Hey, go spot me there in Galilee. That's where I'm going to go. That's where I'm going to be. And this is the area where Jesus gives a great commission And this is where Jesus, of course, ascends to heaven in Matthew 28, 16 through 20. So now let's take a look at Matthew 28, 11 through 15. This is now where the guards report Jesus's body missing. So we see things progressing with the women and the disciples. Now let's see what happens where the Romans are getting involved and the religious leaders. It says, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. So the temple guards are telling the chief priests, not the Roman soldiers. And then we're told in verse 12, and when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. 
if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. Okay, so the religious leaders, notice they cared nothing of the evidence that pointed to Jesus' resurrection. All they wanted to do, if we, you know, based on Matthew's account here, is explain away the empty tomb development. That was true then, and that is certainly true today. And the only quote-unquote reasonable explanation that they could drum up was what? That Jesus' body was stolen. So what they're saying is that the disciples at some point in the night overcame the Roman guards, moved back the stone, and ran off with the dead corpse of Jesus in the middle of the night. And then we're told that they gave money, a sufficient sum of money, so that the guards were given the silver coinage, right, to go out there and to spread false narrative. I believe in the, in the context here was not only did they pay off these temple guards who were there assisting the Roman guards and to report back to the chief priest, but they're given money for themselves, but also to pay other people off to say, hey, here's some money, go spread this, okay, in order to squelch any... Uh, resurrection explanation there in verse 15 says so they took the money and did as they were directed and this story has been spread among the jews to this very day now we turn to luke 24 13 through 35 where this is the road to emmaus where jesus appears to two people we're told in verse 13 that that very day two of them were going to a village named emmaus that's in judea about seven miles from jerusalem and they were talking meaning they were communed with reasonable facts. So they're talking about what has taken place. And they're, so they're talking with each other about all these things that had happened, verse 15. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near, meaning he came from behind and he went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing. That in the Greek just means that they did not have an intelligent comprehension to understand who he actually was. So here you have two followers of Jesus who are returning home and discussing the trial. Uh, They're discussing the crucifixion. And they're also discussing the apparent resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they too had gathered information from witnesses who claimed the tomb was empty and had seen the risen Christ. Now, as that's spreading from the women to the disciples, remember, at this point in time, you have the Jewish uh, temple guards who are spreading the lies that Jesus' body had been stolen. Now, this phrase here, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. I believe this was a divine act to prevent the disciples from recognizing Jesus. If you go to Mark 16, verse 12, it reads, After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them. Does not mean in the Greek a different person, just a different form as they were walking into the country. This is not deception. This is a divine act, I think, of prevention, not deception. Verse 17 And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other? That means a back and forth conversation as you walk. And they stood still looking sad, gloomy. They had this gloomy countenance uh, with them. So this encounter, of course, is very unusual. Uh, The the fact that Jesus takes on another form so that he's not recognizable. And, And now he plays ignorant, though. He's like, hey, what's going on here? What are you guys talking about? that has transpired uh, about this public execution of this of this pub, uh, uh, popular prophet. And then one of them, notice we're told here in verse 18, then one of them named Cleopas uh, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Now, this disciple Cleopas, this is a very common name. 
uh, might be mentioned if you look in John 19, verse 25. Um, and this unnamed companion, I believe, could have possibly be his wife, Mary, the aunt of Jesus. But then when you look at verse 13, though, Luke uses a masculine pronoun to describe the two disciples. So because there's some commentaries that think that this was a couple. But when I look at the, the masculine pronouns, um, it's, it seems that Luke is describing two men. Then in verse 19, and he said to them, what things? And they said to him, to Jesus, well, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped, we had expected that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things had happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see. So again, these reports of the empty tomb were certainly a sign of hope, yet the disciples still could not pinpoint where Jesus was in fact. Was it, was his dead body moved somewhere else or was his dead body not there because he in fact rose from the dead? Now, this phrase that we're hoping that he would redeem Israel, they're anticipating that Jesus will fulfill the words of Zechariah 1 verse 28. But again, this was not uh, Jesus ruling and reigning on earth, but Jesus overcoming sin, atoning for our sins, and he'd be the savior of the world, right? That he would take away the sins of, of mankind. That's what they were still not understanding up to this point. Then we're told in verse 25, and he said to them, oh, foolish, meaning unsuspected ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Now, this is why I believe Jesus did not reveal his true identity, because this was an opportunity for him to explain scripture to them rather than them just see that it's the resurrected Christ and not give them this opportunity to put things together. Because again, just as he's giving messages, these declarative statements, he's now putting scripture to it because that's what they were not understanding so he's going to give them a whole breakdown so that they're now going to take and they're going to start explaining in the new church. So again, although these two disciples, they knew and they believed in the miracles of Jesus, they still failed to see how his life signified the rich prophetic fulfillment that's laid out in scripture. Again, Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53, Psalm 16, Psalm 100. And that's why he's referring to them as foolish ones. This was openly rebuking them for their lack of faith and understanding in what the scriptures has said about him. So that's why in verse 27, beginning with Moses and the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them and all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So this is rich because Jesus is now revealing in his resurrected body how he, the Messiah, fulfilled all the scriptures that had prophesied of him. Now, later on, you see that Peter gets it in Acts 3, 22 through 26, but I believe this is the beginning where these disciples, Cleopas and his companion, take this information and start disseminating, showing the other disciples who start looking into it themselves and telling other people the Messiah was revealed in these scriptures. We were taught these scriptures as a child, and now the Messiah has come and he's fulfilled them. Verse 28, so they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he 
That is, Jesus gave the impression that he was going to go further on, and they urged, they encouraged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went to stay with them. So this is just a common gesture. It was very customary uh, to have this type of ancient hospitality. Verse 30, when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And notice verse 31, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. I love this because once again, just like in Luke's uh, gospel, he mentions a lot of table scenes. There's a lot of activity that took place around uh, the Jewish uh, meal settings. And Jesus rewards these two disciples as he breaks bread in front of them and reveals his true identity. And we're told in verse 32, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? So the presence of the resurrected Christ and the teaching he gave them from the scriptures moved on their hearts considerably. I mean, think about you and I, even as we're talking about this right now, my heart is moved. I wasn't even there physically, but just trying to think what that is like. But even as you and I open the word of God and it speaks to you and me, it's beautiful. It's powerful. It burns within us. And that is the significant point with these uh, two men. And they were told in verse 33, and they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told, meaning they reported what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread, Mark 16, verse 13. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. So again, notice that the the group of the core disciples still were not believing. The women at first, Peter and John come back. You got Mary Magdalene comes back, and now you got these two disciples come back. So these eyewitness accounts continue to grow, right, on Easter Sunday. And yet, based on Mark 16, verse 13, uh, they still, the disciples that is, reject these appearances. Now notice the phrase here, they said, appeared to Simon. So between the time the two disciples came back to Jerusalem to report the encounter of Jesus on the road to Emmaus uh, and the gathering of the disciples based on verse 33, Jesus had appeared to Peter. So again, there's, it's kind of difficult to kind of piece together precisely when in fact this took place, just like when Mary Magdalene had gone back to the tomb at what point after Peter and John had left. But we don't really know how these two disciples, when they were leaving to from Jerusalem, but then they turn around and they start heading back. And we're told, remember, the day was still young when they wanted to uh, have that time with Jesus, and then he reveals himself. But what we're now told, though, is that Jesus appears to the 10 disciples in John 20, verses 19 through 23. It says, on the evening of that day, so again, at this point now, remember, chronological, from the road to Emmaus, they get back to Jerusalem. There's a time lapse there of some time. It's now evening of that day, the first day of the week. The doors were being, they were locked where the disciples were for fear, meaning they were in a state of intense distress uh, about the Jews because they were worried about what the chief priests were going to do. Jesus came, meaning he arrived, and he stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. So now it's possible uh, that the disciples were still using the upper room for the Pascal feast on Thursday night. Matter of fact, fast forwarding into the book of Acts, I believe they're still occupying this space for quite some time. That, that was a night, remember, where Jesus was telling them. So here they're in the same room just a few days later, and 
they're probably contemplating, remember, they're in a state of shock. They're trying to, to make sense of what everyone's saying and wondering why hasn't he appeared to us. They're going back to John 13, 31 through chapter 6, verse 33, these great teachings of Jesus in the upper room when they were partaking of Passover. But they're fearing the Jews. Remember, they were almost arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, and their master was crucified. So, of course, they're going to be afraid. What's next? What's going to happen to us? But notice Jesus appears to them in the midst of this great fear and confusion. He says, peace be with you. Now, if you notice, Jesus' resurrected body isn't limited to earthly restrictions. He miraculously appears before the disciples, and he offers a whole new meaning of shalom to them. This was a peace that he mentioned to them in John 14, verse 27, and John 16, verse 33. And he gives them this peace, and he tells them not to, again, fear not, for I am with you. This peace that surpasses not just physical affirmities and distress, but spiritually as well. Luke 24, 36 puts it like this. Now, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. So at this very moment, the disciples were analyzing the reports from the women, uh, Peter and John, as well as Cleopas and his companion. And that's where Jesus comes in in Luke 24, 37 through 39. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. So at first glance, the disciples believed Jesus to be an aberration of the dead or a ghost. And he says to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet. That is, I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. So here, Jesus offers the physical proof that they needed to settle it once and for all, that he truly is who he says he is. Now, notice the progression once again. It's at this point now that Jesus is showing them the evidence of his resurrected body. With Cleopas and the companion, he's showing them how he fulfilled messianic prophecy. And with Cleopas and the companion, you know, he was, he shows his true identity and his resurrected body. Of course, with Mary Magdalene, she bows and worships and holds and clings to him like the women did. And now in front of the 10 disciples, he's saying, look it, touch me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones like I do. So he's eliminating this, this uh, shadowy afterlife that was espoused by some Jews in those ancient days. He's saying, this is me in physical form. Luke 24, 40 through 43, and when he said these things, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate it before them. Now, John 20, 20 says, then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus's glorified body, again, was not um, limited by physical um, objects and, and here in his glorified body, he was able to consume food. I believe this points to the physical and spiritual nature of this post-mortem Jesus that is reflective of what you and I will have in heaven, that we will partake of food as well in our spirit-dominated body in the resurrection. John 20, 21 through 23, and Jesus said to them again, peace be with you as a father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Now, I always find this to be amazing because in the midst of their fear, in the midst of the fact that they continue to reject these eyewitnesses, Jesus is still saying to them, despite your fear, despite your disbelief, I'm going to give you my peace and I'm going to use you to send uh, you out to spread my 
wonderful message, this gospel message. And we're told in verse 22, and when he said these things, he breathed on them and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So Jesus breathes life into his disciples. This is reflected by the way of God breathing, remember, life into Adam in Genesis 2, 7. And this phrase here, receive the Holy Spirit, this action on part of Jesus is extending to his disciples new creation that we're going to see in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. It's an anticipation of the coming Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Now, one commentary that is uh, the life of Christ, the study of the gospel record says this, quote, the incident of Jesus breathing on the 10 and telling them to receive the Holy Spirit poses a problem for English readers because it it is not possible to capture the Greek nuances in English. The Greek verb is an eros imperative and thus refers to an action which is yet to be commenced. The disciples were ordered to receive the Holy Spirit at a yet future time, and they were thus to seek him and then receive him in the future. This occurred on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, end quote. And then finally, the last recorded thing on Easter Sunday Verse 23 says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Isn't that interesting? The last thing Jesus says on Resurrected Sunday is about forgiveness. And the bottom line is this. He rose from the dead. He defeated sin and death. Jesus Christ came to forgive us of our sins. He's, he and he alone can forgive sins. So what Jesus is proclaiming to the disciples is for them to live out this truth and to rest in the fact that he came to forgive mankind of their sins and that, that they, them, they don't have the ability to perform forgiveness on their own, but they're there to proclaim it in the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And so my friends, that's the takeaway. The takeaway is the fact that we have a risen Savior who has forgiven us of our sins, and we, in faith, are to go and to tell people of His great forgiveness. But as followers of Jesus Christ who believe in the resurrection, who have asked Christ to forgive us of our sins, we are called and commanded as disciples of Christ to forgive others of their wrong. Don't harbor resentment. Don't have bitterness in your heart. If there's someone in your life that you need to forgive, forgive them. Walk in that peace. Walk in that newness of life. When, when God forgives us, when we allow his love to consume our lives, we can't help but love other people. And I pray that is true for you. Now, if you want more information about evidential uh, facts to the resurrection, proofs to the resurrection, I write about that in my Q&A book that I wrote with Dr. Norman Geiser. So you can check that out. It's on my website, standstrongministries.org. You can go on Amazon. We also have a chapter that I wrote with Dr. Alex McFarland about the resurrection. Uh, we give an acronym called RISEN. We look at the record of Jesus' death. We look at the interment of Jesus, meaning his burial, significant appearances of Jesus, as we just talked about today on the podcast. We look at extraordinary conversions, and then we look at the new life and new message that came out of Judaism, now known as Christianity. And so you can, you can check that information out in a book that I wrote called Stand Strong in Your Faith. And you can also go to my YouTube channel, Jason P. Jimenez. You can search me on YouTube. And there we have videos about the resurrection and about miracles. So I hope you guys take advantage of the resources and use them to not just grow in your faith, but go around there 
and help other people know that they can believe in Christ as their Lord and Savior as well. I know this has been a long podcast today, but man, when you're talking about the resurrection, uh, there's a lot to cover. So I pray this has been a blessing to you guys, wherever you are at. Thank you guys for your prayers and for your support. And I continue to pray that you guys remain safe and grounded in scripture. And until next time, keep standing strong, my friends.